Hello and welcome back to TRSI, The Right Side Ireland, and welcome back to the conversation today. We are delighted to be in conversation with Mr. Peter Hitchens, who is joining us from London. He is an author, a commentator, some would say a polemicist, but always a very fine writer, always an interesting man, and a man with an opinion worth listening to. Peter, thanks a million for joining us. I hope we find you safe and well in the midst of all the various interestingnesses that are happening to us at the moment. Well, so far, so good. We are in a moment of iconoclasm. We seem to be living in a moment of a rejection of history. So you were, well, I don't know if fortunate is the word, but you were certainly there at that moment when the great Soviet bloc imploded. You see, the end of a civilization, it may have been, at the end of a culture, a debased and horrible culture it may have been, but you were there when it ended. And I'm interested to know your impressions of what, what was it like, shall we say, that the end stage life of Soviet Russia? And how was it when the people realized that it was within their grasp to take it down? Well, it had taken some time for it to crumble away. Uh, the long process, uh, particularly under Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, during which the, the, the regime, the, the single rule of the Communist Party, for instance, was gradually withdrawn. And it was quite plain that uh, both economically and politically, the state was no longer functioning as it could. Gorbachev had hoped, I think, to salvage uh, the regime by liberalization, but in fact, uh, that wasn't possible. It didn't really have any legitimacy if one, once it gave up its, its major claims to power. But towards the, I got there, I got to Moscow uh, almost exactly 30 years ago in the middle of, uh, middle of June 1990 when the process was still pretty well advanced. But it was a wholly demoralized place. There was a great deal of corruption. There was almost nothing that could be achieved without corruption. You couldn't live without engaging in it, but alas. Uh, the almost nothing worked properly. Uh, the it was plain also that the the currency and what there was of a banking system were in in danger, and it it had it had lost the will to live. And then eventually the moment came when a group of what might be loosely called Stalinists, really Vladimir Khrushchev, the, the head of the KGB, and a very clever. Latvian called Boris Puga were the main uh, movers of this, decided to stage a putsch against Gorbachev while he was on holiday on the Black Sea in August of 1991. And unlike most Western journalists, I make no claim to having had any particular brilliance about this, it's just a sheer accident. Unlike most of Western journalists, I wasn't away on holiday at the time. I was actually in Moscow when the tanks came up my street and in Moscow during the succeeding days when the putsch collapsed in a sort of drunken heap and the people realized that this really was the end by by staging the putsch uh, the what the putschists did was they persuaded people that this really was the end and when the putsch collapsed and gorbachev was plainly terribly weakened uh, it was the end of the communist party and one of my strongest memories which i shall never get out of my head not least because i've never seen anyone else report it is walking around central moscow the, the day after the, the, the putsch had, had collapsed and seeing in every litter bin in the center of the city uh, great piles of smoldering Communist Party membership cards, red and gold. 
and burning slowly and little plumes of smoke above all because people had finally realized they no longer had to to give allegiance to this terrible cult and so they they had made this very important symbolic gesture up till then if you'd wanted a decent job if you wanted your children to go to university uh, if you wanted practically anything important you you had to make this obeisance and now they no longer did and they were very pleased and it was the it was regime change the same thing happened with the pulling down of quite a lot of statues the most notable being that of felix Trzynski, uh, the, the the founder of the kgb the inventor of red terror uh, probably one of the most evil men unrelievedly evil men who ever lived. And down came his enormous, rather impressive statue from outside the Lubyanka prison in the center of Moscow. And I can't say that I objected particularly to that at the time because it was a regime change which I very much supported and sympathized with. You, 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 you mentioned the corruption. I remember uh, listening to an economist, Russian economist who, who, who was teaching here for a while called Konstantin Gurdjieff, um, who had not been able to go to university because his family were Polish. And he was very coruscating on this notion that still was held by certain people who, shall we say, held a, a, a kind of a, still held a torch for the idea of the Soviet Union. Uh, and they would concede, oh, things went wrong and Stalin was a bad guy and things. But at the heart of it, it was a project dedicated to the notion of equality or egalitarianism. And, Egalite, fraternite, etc. Gordiev would say no. It was corrupt from top to bottom. Yes. It was racist. It was a caste society. And if you, and you inherited the sins of your fathers and your grandfathers. It was it was certainly with beyond doubt a, a very racist society. In fact, deeply anti-Semitic. So that many of the best qualified doctors were Jews, but they were not, for instance, allowed to treat members of the of the party elite because Jews were not trusted. Uh, discrimination against Jews is pretty much general, and not, not in any kind of formal legal way, but simply because they would, they would be treated worse uh, than others. And the inequality was astonishing. The, in the center of well, the Sparrow Hills, then called the Lenin Hills, not far from where I lived in Moscow, uh, there was a large hospital purely for the, the members of the Communist Party Central Committee. It was the size of a of a general hospital in a medium-sized major city, uh, but no one could go to it apart from this privileged elite. It was surrounded by a 16-foot wall and and had a, a park around. I, I, after the collapse of the regime, I got in and saw this enormously lavish arrangement purely uh, for the elite. And in, in every aspect of life, the same things: special travel arrangements special holiday arrangements, uh, far better housing, uh, far better rations, uh, secret deliveries of superior goods uh, direct to the home from special shops most people couldn't go to. It was probably the most uh, brutally privileged and unequal society I've, I've ever seen in my life. And yet people still uh, imagine for some, for some reason that it was, it was an egalitarian paradise. Absolutely the opposite. Uh, but if people do want to be sentimental about it. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I think there's, still, there's this great enthusiasm now for, for Vasily Grossman, who is indeed a very interesting and powerful author, uh, but, but who is is useful to many people on the uh, on the left because he's uh, he's still fundamentally a sort of Soviet 
patriot while being deeply critical of the Soviet regime. He's a sort of left-wing answer to Solzhenitsyn. The, the left could never stand Solzhenitsyn because he was a conservative Christian patriot. And they weren't going to take it from him that the place was a prison camp. But they, are, they now more or less uh, take it from Grossman. Uh, but there is that reserve in Grossman that there is still there's still some sort of utopian idealism in the state, which I I think is is is, is a mistake. Part of Grossman's attraction to them, the implication that it was somehow redeemable. Well, I think I think it's it's not stated, but it's often implied in the way in the sort of quite lyrical ways he writes about the Soviet mm -hmm. experiment. I think it's, it's there because Grossman himself. Uh, being a Jew was himself faced uh, some considerable uh, discrimination from the, the then Stalinist system and was at one stage uh, forced to sign a terrible letter uh, calling for the execution of Jewish doctors in the non-existent doctor's plot. Yes. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to criticize Grossman. He, he was an extremely brave man. And, and his, his, but what I do want to criticize is the way in which he's been adopted in some ways by people on the left, who spent a very, very long time coming around to what Robert Conquest told them back in 1968, that the place was a totalitarian slum. Marx, when Marxism ultimately makes one claim, in, in the sense that it's limited, uh, Gramsci would try and correct that, I think, later, but fund that the Marxist state will provide for the material needs of the proletariat in a way that capitalism will not. Yet, even on that very basic pre premise, the Soviet Union was a failed state. I mean, by the time you got there, what was the what was basic life like for the non-party member, the factory worker, and how tough was it to get basic stuff and the, the quality? Well, a lot of things were in short supply, uh, and it was it was just not always easy to get uh, I mean, essentials. Uh, sort of pasta and bread uh, were available, and the sort of rather poor bread and potatoes diet of the Soviet poor continued. People didn't starve. There was a myth of a famine in Moscow, which, which didn't exist. It wasn't. It was just shortages of this, shortages of that, and the absolutely pervasive nature of corruption. If you wanted decent medical treatment, if you wanted anaesthetics at the dentist, or if uh, or if you wanted to get proper antibiotics at hospital, or even in some cases, decent treatment at all, then corruption was pretty much uh, inevitable, as it would be in getting a, a, any kind of good position on the housing queue or, or getting your children a better education. It was deeply corrupt for most people, and the standard of living quite low. I, and I lived in Moscow, which was the showpiece city, and one heard only secondhand descriptions of how much worse life was in the major provincial cities, the, the filthy pollution, particularly, and the very poor quality of the food, uh, and, and the, the absence of good, of good medical treatment being a being constant. It, it wasn't uh, effective on its own terms, and it was unfair on anybody's terms. And so, uh, it, and it was, it, it was plainly, it was, a, it, was a, it was a culture on its way. It, it, it had, for particularly for, for middle-class pseudo-intellectuals, it had certain attractions. You saw that uh, writers, musicians, academics would get, uh, by, com by comparison to the West, quite privileged treatment in access to housing and, and certain other privileges. If they, if they conformed with the party line, there was a good life to be had for that part of the middle class. And you can see why people of that kind might find it appealing. And it had, it, Russia is a very culturally... Um, 
conscious country and pays a great deal of attention uh, to music and literature and things like this, which, uh, which, which again, is, is appealing. But don't mistake any of that for, for, for it having been any kind of utopia, because it certainly was not. To what extent, if at all, were, were ordinary Russians aware of, you mentioned Solzhenitsyn, were aware of him or aware of, of his writing? Oh, I think probably the, the Russian population or the Soviet population at that time was probably the most conscious uh, of any, politically conscious of any population of any country in the world. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was in, one, in one way wonderful to live in a country when nobody trusted the government. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> which sort of seemed to be a sensible position to take. Uh, no, I think people were very well aware of it. The, the um, word got out. And what the great difficulty was that this couldn't be expressed publicly uh, by major political figures uh, or in the media until very late on, which is why Boris Yeltsin was so important, because he, he did begin to express in public opposition to the regime of the kind which many people felt. And there are many things to be said against Yeltsin, and I won't not in trouble to say them here and now because they're pretty obvious in retrospect. But the reason why he gained so much popularity was because he, he, he expressed a great deal of, of, of deep discontent, particularly with the corruption which people had to put up with in very small ways all the time. How important was Yeltsin's role in defeating the putsch? Was it, was it always doomed to fail anyway or was he instrumental? My own guess is it would have failed anyway. Uh, because they, they, they simply couldn't get support, particularly the serious support of the armed forces. Uh, and But it, there is no doubt that Yeltsin was a very important rallying point, as was the, the, the mayor of Moscow, Lushkov, uh, a strong rallying point for those who were opposed to it. It was, a, it was quite a poorly organized approach, as far as I'm seeing, and several of its members, pathetic figures such as Yanayev, uh, really weren't up to the job of staging a putsch. Whereas Khrushchev and Pugo definitely were, uh, I think my guess is it would have failed anyway. But I can't. How can one tell? It, of course, it, having seen it fail and with such speed, uh, it, it, it was barely there before it had fallen down. Uh, that I, I'm left with that impression. But who knows if Yeltsin? Had, if they, if they again, then again, if they'd had the sense to arrest Yeltsin from their own point of view uh, and and the organisation to do so they'd have been the kind of people who could have run a successful push. <laughs> but I have had an occasion, to, an opportunity to talk to, to friends who were present uh, at the end of the Ceausescu regime in Romania and the falling yeah. of the wall in East Berlin. And when I watch the, the live feeds from the United States and indeed from Bristol of all places, and I see that the current iconoclasm and this what people are selling as a revolutionary moment. I I wonder about the, the similarities or the differences. I remember one 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 friend, this friend saying to me that when he I asked him was that was there a, this, was the, the emotion was it an overwhelming emotion? He said no. There there was a sense of people of of joy. This was in he's speaking about Berlin, but tinged with a sense of sadness. It was a controlled thing. It wasn't. He never said that there was a. He didn't feel that there was a sense that this was something that was going to run away from people. I think in Romania it was slightly different. The Ceausescu experience had been slightly different. I I don't get that feeling today. That the these do not seem like happy revolutionaries to me. 
what do you say these? The, the, I mean, you know, our current crop of revolutions, our current no, crop of um, adopters. Well, it, it is different. So I use the phrase regime change because it, it, in trying to explain why the, the, the removal of statues is so important uh, and why it gives me so much pause for thought when I see it happening here. And I'm not, I don't particularly care whether there's a statue of a, of a 16th century slave trader in the middle of Bristol. Uh, I'm not especially bothered about a rather ugly statue of Cecil Rose in the center of my own hometown, Oxford. These, I, I don't, I'm not moved to defend them as such. What worries me is the, is the deeper significance of, uh, of the removal of these statues, um, which is often sought or encompassed by people who have very little idea of what it is they're removing. And it, it, it does seem to me to have become uh, a, a very important part of regime change when the, the symbols of the former uh, of the former world are pulled down, whatever they may be. Uh, so I don't feel that what's going on here is the removal, which is really what was happening in the Soviet Union and in Eastern European countries, is the removal of an oppressive power. Uh, I feel what's happening here is the, is the completion of a very, very long march through the institutions and the culture uh, of what we would now call the Gramscian left going back to the late 1960s. You, well, I suppose the 1960s, we, we would identify as that moment where, amongst other things, French critical theory leaves France and goes, for, goes and gets bought in wholesale by the Harvard faculty uh, and begins its own particular corrosive march in the institutions. But I've read, I, I, maybe, I, and my memory is failing me here, but that at some st that you 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 write, wrote it, that part of what's happening to a large degree is as a result of the the decline of the public role of religion in in the case in, in the United Kingdom, which you date from the the, the First World War. That is true. Yeah. I'm curious about that. There was a, a, a Scottish academic, he was a, a, a Norbertine priest, he was a convert from We Freeze. And he, one of his, he was a very brilliant man and very entertaining. He, he was once <laughs> accused by a mutual friend of ours of being a crypto-fascist. And his response was, there's nothing crypto about my fascism. But he... Oh, really? Well, he was a, he was a joke. Uh, but it was... I, yeah, people shouldn't tell jokes like that. I you may have a point, but he was very much of the opinion that when people talk about the death of the Ancien Regime at the French Revolution, that they missed the point that actually the Ancien Regime persisted in the United Kingdom until the First World War. It was the First World War that actually destroyed the Ancien, the Ancien Regime. Well, the there United is Kingdom. a death. Certainly, um, Paul Cambon, who was the French ambassador to London uh, before, during, and after the First World War, reckoned in 1918 that... Uh, England had undergone a revolution, uh, that it had, it, it, it had it, it, in many ways, as significant as the French Revolution. And of course, that is the revolution. The French Revolution is the revolution. We, we've had this long diversion into Bolshevism and the dictatorship of the proletariat and uh, fundamentally economic 
uh, revolution, the seizure of commanding heights, the economy, nationalization, and so forth. But this was a diversion. I think if you read the 1848 manifesto, it, it really is much more, uh, as indeed was the, the, uh, the Paris Commune of, 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 uh, of 1871, it really is much more about uh, the revival of the spirit of 17, well, actually 1792, 93, rather than 1789. Mm -hmm. a, a revolution of, of um, a radically anti-Christian revolution, a revolution of, of, of morals and manners and culture, rather than particularly a, a revolution in property. Though there, there was a property aspect to the French Revolution, and quite a considerable one. It wasn't anything like as, as, as to the fore as the, particularly the, the fascinating episode of Fouché's de-Christianization of France, the, the deliberate desecration of, of churches and the, the the active destruction of the Christian religion. Well, the savagery in, of the Vendée. In, in the revolution, people forget about or even don't even know about. But it was a, it was the it was the remaking of the social and moral order, and also the fundamental abandonment of the belief that man was made in the image of God and therefore fundamentally unchangeable to the idea that man could be reshaped. And I think that if anybody well, doubts yeah. that aspect of it, they should go back and read the, the, the accounts of the assembly when they talk about the necessity for the destruction of the, of the Vendée and the language that they, talk, they use about plowing them onto the, into the ground like wolves you destroy them. It's unequivocally that they, they see these, this, this is a pestilence, this is a virus, the kind of language we might see later in, in other regimes at, in later times. But it's and the way they they the the hostility, and this is a great to me. It's a great dividing point between, say, reading the American Declaration of of Independence and the Constitution, which, when you read them, whatever about whether some of them were Unitarians or whether they were whatever, it is essentially a religious document. Yeah, and it, there is there is a recognition that the, it's certainly a, certainly a, certainly a, a, theist, a, a, a theist, theist document, yeah. and in, in some cases a deist document. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a Christian one, is it? it well, it's not. I mean, I think it's very hard to imagine it without the Christian foundations. Well, that's where they have to draw their idea of, of, yeah. of, of what is good and, and right from. But the French, the French, the French, French is very different. They did not. They, 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 some of them wanted to worship reason. And very, very much anti. Um, and you get Saint Simon and and the, the positivists that come out of that and all that leads from that. So, anyway, sorry, I'm interrupting you there because you were, you were talking about the, it is ultimately the French Revolution. That's where it all starts. That's the real revolution. I think that is the revolution. I think it is the revolution which continues to this day. And I know, I know, we now know that uh, he, he misunderstood the question. But so uh, the the great remark of Joan Light. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd say foreign minister when asked what he thought about the French Revolution that it was too early to tell uh, was uh, was a, a would have been a very clever thing to say if he'd meant it. He didn't mean it. I didn't know that. But he was actually referring to, to the events of 1968. I think. Okay, right. He thought that's what he'd been asked about. And in fact, <laughs> the question had been about 1789. So in the First World War, uh, which I think you think the Britons should not have taken part in. Oh, that's what I think, yeah. Yeah, and I think you're probably, I think you're right. I think, uh, I'm, I'm baffled at, at take your take on this. I am baffled by this notion that people, I've had discussions with friends of mine about this, historians who have said, oh, well, you'd have to understand that there's the real risk that you could have seen 
uh, a German expansion, a German hegemony uh, on the continent of Europe if we hadn't gone in. Uh, my response is, everything awful that happens in the 20th century begins in the Somme, if you like. Hit, yeah. Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, the, the, everything. Yeah. It comes also, from also, there. Also, what could have been worse? Had what, also, fundamentally, what is so bad about German hegemony over continental Europe? Yeah. Uh, look at the size of the place. Uh, it, 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 you know, from, from the mast to the Memel, and uh, it, it's enormous. And once Napoleon has unintentionally unified it, or reunified it, as you mm -hmm. might say, uh, this seems to me to be inevitable. And these great struggles uh, to prevent the inevitable uh, cost enormous. Oddly enough, Britain's initial attitude to it, uh, which I d deal with in my, my latest, probably last book, uh, The Phony Victory, uh, was over the, the promises which Britain had made to Denmark and over the, the famous Schleswig-Holstein question mm -hmm. by Palmerston. Now, Palmerston's always thought of as being a drum-beating jingo. Uh, in fact, as soon as he realized that any getting into a conflict with Bismarck uh, was a hiding to nothing, uh, he canceled his promises and said, right, no, sorry, uh, we're sorry we promised <laughs> that we would guarantee you this, that, and the other, uh, Danes. We're not, we're not actually going to do it. The, the weather's too bad, or something like yeah. that. It was a terrible excuse. And he narrowly escaped censure uh, in the House of Commons. And, and everybody said, this is a, a terrible blot of shame on the history of our nation. And now nobody even knows about it. It's completely forgotten. Uh, but the, uh, and the same attitude taken, uh, very cunning diplomacy during the Franco-Prussian War, about the, 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 the treaty guaranteeing the existence of Belgium was, was amended specifically uh, so that Britain could keep out of the Franco-Prussian struggle. Again, very sensibly. Uh, but after that, there seems to be this very strange view that somehow or other Britain was powerful enough to intervene in continental Europe against the German Empire, which had already been created. Mm -hmm. uh, you might conceivably have had some, you know, by some diplomatic wizardry, have prevented Bismarck's, uh, Bismarck's project uh, before 1870. Then I'm not quite sure how you would have done it. Uh, but once it had happened, it seems to me to have been inevitable. And both in, in, in 1914 and then again in 1939-40, France's attempts pretty much to make water flow uphill, uh, trying to, to maintain itself as a, as a power equal to Germany and Europe, uh, failed and failed tragically uh, with a, a terrible cost and made things much worse, it seems to me, than they would otherwise have been. What is it that happens in, as, or as a consequence of the war that is so damaging to public religion in the, in the United Kingdom? Well, I think because the war was, was promoted so much by the, by the churches, there was, always, there was no, always no uh, religious or moral force which didn't say, this is a great war for civilization. I've got my great uncle's medal downstairs in this house, which has inscribed on it the, 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 the words, the great war for civilization. That's what people were told it was. And those who went and fought discovered that what it actually was was a squalid struggle in which they had to watch their dead comrades being eaten by rats, uh, in which all the filthiest and most unpleasant forms of life, which they had been brought up as Edwardians and Victorians to, to, to dislike and despise, everything horrible uh, and immoral uh, became common. People were taught to, 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 to kill their fellow men uh, and to be brutal and to use foul language and to have uh, corrupt attitudes to life. 
uh, in the course of a war, which they had been told was a great struggle for civilization and a noble chivalrous cause. And they came back and they knew it wasn't true. And it's, it, it, it ceased to be the great war for civilization because this was unsustainable and became the war to end war. And on September the 1st, 1939, uh, calling it the war to end war also became a bit of a dud. But so the, the, it, it's generally now accepted, even by people who would have been quite jingoistic about the First World War up to 1939, that, it, that there's almost nothing to be said for it. And then in 1939, there's a, the, 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 well, I, I, it's it's a very complicated argument, 1939, and whatever you say about it, you'll be misre misrepresented, so I'm not going to say it. Anybody who wants to okay, know what I, I think about it can read my book. I, I, and we will be we'll mention that. Uh, okay, I'll maybe try and provoke you with this, in the sense that it has been observed that the First World, if you like, the First World War starts in 1914. In 1918, there's an armistice, or show, there's a truce, and the war breaks out again in 1939 and really only finishes in 1945. Do you think there's any truth to that? Oh, that's absolutely right. I think, I think, I think um, Thosh, when he saw the, 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 the Marshal Thosh, when he saw the peace terms of, of, uh, of the Versailles Treaty, he said, well, this is just a truce. Uh, and I think um, Maynard Keynes felt pretty much the same. It was, an un, it was unfinished business. And it, 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 we all associate the policy of... Uh, of what you might call German revanchism with Hitler. But I think you'll find that if you look at the records of the democratic and liberal statesmen of Germany who, who ruled that country long before Hitler was even thought of, uh, their foreign policy objectives, certainly in, in, in Western Europe and around Poland, were not that different from his. It was, there was a general German resentment of the way Germany had been treated, which was not was only sustainable by the sort of armed force which uh, actually the Allied countries were not willing to sustain, especially once Russia had dropped out of the game. I, this is interesting to me. I, I don't know how much how interesting it is to, to the listeners, but I would, before we move on, I'd ask, I'd like to ask your opinion on this. One, it has been argued by some that actually the problem with the treaty is not that the treaty or the resolution of the war is not that this, the Treaty of Versailles is so terribly savage or that the, the, the reparations are so excessively high, uh, but rather the real problem was that the Germans were able to live with a myth that they hadn't actually lost the war and that for the, the peace to be truly established, it would have been better for the French and the English to march into Berlin and to make it clear to the German people, and more specifically, shall we say, to the army and to the high command, you did lose, and now you will have to pay. Maybe. I don't know. I can't tell. Um, it's, 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 it is an argument that has been made. And the the stab in the back that, comes from... The same argument is made for, the, um, for what has always seemed to me to be the morally indefensible bombing of German civilians in their homes in German cities during the Second World War. It, it, it did create a general impression of of defeat um i don't know i don't think it doesn't really work for me the problem is that germany is this is we have a similar problem with russia russia is it exists you can't you can't remove it from existence it will have as a result uh, diplomatic and territorial imperatives whoever runs it uh, which will make themselves felt uh, in various parts of the, well, the, the as with the joints and 
and cracks uh, of, of, of language and culture which, which, which form borders in Europe, it will make itself felt. If you try to suppress it, it is like making, trying to make water flow uphill and it won't work. But is that, may, may, is that precisely the problem uh, of so much policy, that rather than simply accepting the reality that Russia is and Germany is, that a lot of it seems to be the, the historical policy was underpinned with the notion that they shouldn't be. Or if that they are, they shouldn't be as they are. Well, also, there was the, the, the lunacy at Versailles of, of trying to make national self-determination a principle of, uh, of, of, uh, of organizing Europe, uh, which works fine until you get an area where national self-determination comes into conflict between one group and another, where one doesn't work. And it was a poor principle, and it, it couldn't last, and it couldn't be made to last, and it didn't last. But getting back to the issue, so we, you, you pinpoint that the, the, there's a collapse in the in the faith in the of the institution of the Church of England, and not just the Church of England, any I, 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 other churches. Well, no, not well. just the Church of England. One, a prominent supporter of the First World War in, in in British public life was one Gilbert Keith Chesterton, the great hero of Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't share the total full on admiration of many people for Chesterton. He has some obviously some talents and said some clever things. But it, it's, it seems to me to be very symbolic of the, of, uh, of the, of the general religious view. It wasn't confined to the, to the established Church of England, but most Christian churches and sects were more or less in favor of the war and made it plain that they, they supported it and thought it was a moral act. And I, this simply was, it, it was, I think, very obvious to anyone of Christian conscience. Who particularly anyone who was who was uh, either volunteered for or was conscripted to fight in that war that it was no such thing. It's always struck me as a, an odd position for somebody representing what should we not a non-national church to say God's on our side when you can be guaranteed that the a member of your own church somewhere in Bavaria will be making exactly the opposite argument. Well, it is an odd position, but people, I'm afraid. Uh, one thing that life has taught me is that people have absolutely no difficulty whatsoever in maintaining bizarre double think positions of that kind all the time. Well, the, the, even when they're pointed out, I, I, is that maybe that's, especially when they're pointed out to them in some cases? That's the sign and signature of modern man, isn't it? The, the capacity to live in dissonance. You may believe that you, it's very hard for anyone to deceive you. But the person who is always, always capable of deceiving you is, is sitting exactly where you are. He is yourself. We are tremendously good at deceiving ourselves. Mm -hmm. So, if anyone can work out how to persuade us to do that, then they've they've, 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 they've discovered the secret of propaganda. I don't know if you're aware of the, an American linguist called John McWhorter. I'm afraid not. He's a big. He's something of a presence on on YouTube. And in academia, he's, he speaks on, he's, he's, a, he's a black academic, he speaks on issues of race. And it has been his contention for some time now that anti-racism in the United States and increasingly outside of the United States has become a new religion. And that if you actually observe, particularly in the last couple of months, uh, a lot of the protests that we see ritual, we see liturgy, we see explicitly religious gesture, and that this is coming from that specific group of society, shall we say, the upper middle classes, who are the most likely to be both deracinated and dereligious, if, uh, are most immediately disconnected from any kind of religious tradition. 
I don't know. I mean, for, for me, the, the, the opposition to racial bigotry has always been the best thing about the left. Uh, right back to the 1960s, the, the, the thing which you cannot take away from the, from the radical left was the, their absolute uncompromising refusal to accept any further racial discrimination, their, their support for the civil rights movement. Uh, in, in that, you, you have to say on that, they were right. And I think those conservatives who, who uh, were opposed to that made fools of themselves and did the cause of conservatism a great deal of harm. The difficulty is, is in distinguishing uh, the, the proper and, and, and righteous uh, rejection of racial bigotry from political structures which are sometimes built on that justification but actually have another purpose. But isn't it true that if, if one of the things that you find divides the contemporary left is in fact the old-fashioned Marxist who would have been involved and very supportive of that for that the, the rights movements in the 60s whatever, are baffled by this new incarnation of, of intersectionality where everybody gets so many points for occupying a particular position oh, in the impressive heart. And what we, I was very much involved in, in the, the revolutionary left in the late 60s and early 1970s and uh, took part in quite a lot of demonstrations and other actions about it. And what the thing which we were in, in, in favor of, I, mean, I remember the slogan, you know, one race, the human race, uh, that there wasn't to be uh, any discrimination, that we were all the same. And I have noticed very much that this, is, this, this idea that the integration uh, of, of all people and the rejection of, of race even as a meaningful category, which I still hold to, uh, have given way uh, to this um, highly different position. I noticed particularly when the, after the Stephen Lawrence murder, when the McPherson report came out, uh, it actually uh, it actually attacked the concept of colorblind policing. Yes, and I thought, well, this is a retrograde step. Colorblind policing is good. Color policing should be colorblind. You know, people should not be arrested for driving while black, and it should be plain that this shouldn't happen. You shouldn't make any distinction between people because of the color of their skin, even if your distinction is made for what you believe to be progressive purposes. It, 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 just, it just seemed to, 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 um, just to uh, not to work for me. And it's one of the reasons why I think the term racialism, which is the one which we used very much, it's harder to shout than racism, but we used to shout it <laughs> back in, the, in, in, in 68, uh, is subtly different from racism which tends to be mixed up, not just with racial discrimination, but with uh, cultural positions, which are not by any means necessarily based on racial bigotry. It was, you were involved in, in, revolution, in the revolutionary socialist uh, movement in the 70s. Now, it's in the 70s where we see the beginnings, the roots of intersectionality coming from academia, where new forms of analysis of race, the importation, say, uh, the critical theory and of the Frankfurt School, Marcuse, operating and se sexuality becomes an issue. Uh, gender I could politics. I never get the Frankfurt School thing to work. Uh, I looked into it and it didn't. This this was the the um, William Lind's uh, I think invention of so-called 
cultural Marxism. I, I couldn't ever get that to work. And it seems to me to, to develop some rather unpleasant connotations. Uh, I, Adorno I, has been a very influential. I won't use. I, I won't use the phrase. I always think that going into the Frankfurt School doesn't really. Marcuse is, is obviously, um, and come to that, Wilhelm Reich, uh, obviously important thinkers in this. But, and, but the the really important uh, source of the what is really the Euro communism, which has become the dominant strand of, of, of left wing thought, is, is is surely Antonio Gramsci. Yeah. Well, Gramsci is a powerful thing. He was very much. He was he was very much a favourite of the of the intellectual elite of the outfit that I belong to, the International Socialists. who began to publish um, material about Gramsci in the early seventies. Uh, seeing him was very important. I remembered that, and uh, not at the time fully understanding the importance of it. Only later on did I realise why there was such a, a preoccupation with him. And why was that, do you think? I'm sorry? Why do you think there was such a preoccupation with Gramsci? Well, I think because there was, a, there was an understanding among the more intelligent uh, and, and less um, mechanically-minded comrades, and I'm not, I'm not sure I put myself among the more intelligent or less mechanically-minded comrades at the time, uh, that, the, that the idea that we were going to revolutionize the proletariat and, and, and stand at their head in the, in the Leninist party uh, taking over the state was obviously absurd and didn't fit with the experience of life in a, in a modern Western European country, that if we were going to achieve our objectives, we had to take a different route. And that route was the long march of the institutions, the, the cultural and moral revolution, which then indeed took place. How success, I mean, we hear on the right, constant lamentations and germades on the subject of the, the march through the institutions. How successful do you think it has been in the United Kingdom? Oh, totally. You think it's captured? The, oh, ac the Academy, the BBC? No, everybody thinks the same thing. And they think, I, and what's more, this is the great thing, they, they think, they, they, although they are the establishment, they think they're the revolution. I, this I have to say. Thing, it's a wonderful thing to be. You have I all the fun of being in the revolution and all the power of being in the establishment. It's great. I, I do admire I that. I, I, I admire that say. tremendously. I see this in Ireland all the time when you have these guys and they're writing passionate articles and they, you absolutely see that in their heads they're 20 years old and they're throwing themselves against the walls of the Bastille and they are the insurgency. And when in reality they're in the 50s and they're running some large NGO or some civil service department and are absolutely the definition of the establishment. But still in their hearts and in their minds, they see themselves as these wonderful young revolutionaries going to bring down the edifice. I referred in the first book I ever wrote, uh, The Abolition of Britain, back in 1999, I referred to this curious thing. Continued belief that they, that they, are, they, are, they are the revolution and the outsiders. They're still. Still William Buckley, famously, sorry, William, William Buckley is always regularly quoted as saying that the role of the conservative is to stand athwart history, shouting "stop." Yes, well, that's absolutely true, um, provided he, he he chooses carefully what it is that he wants to stop. I think that conservatives have often been quite stupid, and conservatives try to stop women uh, going to Oxford or Cambridge. Conservatives yes. try to stop women having the vote, for instance. Uh, conservatives did get involved in, um, in, 
racial bigotry. Conservatives supported militaristic uh, foreign policies. Uh, conservatives were uh, far more hostile than they should have been, for instance, to, to trade unionism. Uh, conservatives have, in many cases, done stupid things. And the problem with that is, I mean, everybody does stupid things. Uh, the problem with that is that people say, well, they're always stupid. And because conservatives were against uh, female suffrage and against female education uh, 120 years ago, uh, the things that they're against now are the same as those things, and they're only opposing them because they're thick. And I, th I think this is one of the great weaknesses of conservatism. It, it, it needs to learn when not to say stop. Uh, it needs to learn to see the virtues of its opponents a, a lot more uh, than it does. And I, my unique position, of, of, of say, in to, to the extent there is any conservative stream of thought in my country, of being an ex-Trotskyist, uh, I think enables me to do. No, it doesn't do me any good when I'm when I say of anything that the left does. Actually, they had a point here. Uh, it doesn't mean that the left turn around and say, "Oh, that Peter Hitchens, he really understands us. He's a thoughtful conservative." They still say fascist to me. So how, Hitchens, is, Hitchens is a is a is an imperialist, racist, fascist. It doesn't matter what I say, because I, I understand this is reasonable. Because ultimately, I am because I am a conservative at all. I'm the enemy. How do you get from Trotsky? Utopian doesn't want to be moderated by articulate uh, and effective opposition. Utopian wants to get his way. And the person who, who, who stands athwart the path shouting stop isn't just wrong, he's bad. And so I'm bad. So it doesn't matter what. I'm not aiming to make friends among the left by saying no. What I'm actually saying is if, if there were any hope in conservatism, it would come from an intelligent appreciation of a lot of what the left say, which doesn't always happen. So how, how do you get from Trotsky to Burke? They're not very difficult. Um, I mean, you, you, you come to Trotsky by thinking, and you leave Trotsky by thinking. It's the same railway line. It's, you know, you, you, it, 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 it will take you um, in the, the, it will take you to all kinds of places which are not your final destination. The problem with, usually with, with, with trains is when they come off the tracks, we call that a crash. We do. I wouldn't, maybe that maybe that's not a bad. But what most you, of the trains you, I get on end up being shoved into a siding and sitting <laughs> endlessly waiting for something to happen. But is there actually right now, perhaps, for a Burkean conservative, a moment in the midst of it all of possible optimism? Even though I, it's, I think optimism is something we should be very careful about. A, a degree of pessimism is. Would have served us all well at times. Is it possible that for the last X number, 30, whatever more years, to the extent that you conflate conservatism in England with the Conservative Party? Oh, no, you can't do that. Would, oh, that, was, the, that, that would, would be a very bad thing to do. You can't, whatever you do, you, oh, none, none of your thought will lead, will lead you anywhere if you make that mistake. But if we look, it's not an accident, i put it this way, it's not an accident that Margaret Thatcher's favourite Prime Minister is Gladstone, not Disraeli. That for a large degree, the Tory party in the 20th century has been a battle not between Tories and Tories, but between Tories and Whigs that came in after the destruction of the, Labour, the Liberals. And that 
the assumption, the 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 the, the conflation of conservatism with a sort of radical freedmanite free market economics is a flawed one. It's a misunderstanding historically of what it was well, to be a Tory. Yeah, I mean, the Conservative Party and conservatism are not at all the same thing. And Churchill himself was a liberal uh, for a large part of his political career. Uh, Margaret Thatcher's much admired father, Alderman Roberts, uh, sat in the liberal interest in the, in the Grantham Town Hall. Uh, the, there was a huge effort being made by the Conservative Party uh, in the late 1940s and early 1950s uh, to hoover up the remaining liberal vote to try and overcome what would otherwise have quite possibly been a permanent Labour majority. So the, the party in, in both formal and thinking terms has, has always been quite open to liberalism. And I regard Margaret Thatcher as I regard Ronald Reagan as being largely liberal prime ministers. Uh, they weren't conservative and no one that I can think of in any important political position in my country has been particularly interested in conservatism as such for, for a very long time. Well, if we look at Boris <laughs> for a moment, you could argue that what we've seen here is the capacity for the, the Tories to move, shall we say, left on economics while staying to the right on social issues. And well, in what ways, so. in what ways is, is Alexander Johnson to, to the right, as you would call it, on social issues? I, amongst <laughs> other things, I make, this, I make this purely as a factual point. Mm. Not, I'm not trying to get involved in, in criticism of somebody else's individual actions. It's a factual point. The first prime minister in the history of the country to actually live in Downing Street uh, with a woman who is not his wife. Which is an incredible change. I mean... It's an enormous thing to have happened. I, 20 years ago, people would have found it completely unimaginable. And yet, he, he does that. Whatever else he may or may not be, he's not a moral and social conservative. And was, am I right in remembering that Tony Blair basically told Robin Cook, marry her or dump her? Well, it wasn't Blair. It was his, it was his chief political commissar um, who uh, confronted Cook with the choice. Yeah, was, uh, Alistair Campbell, as I recall in the story. But yeah. Because it wasn't possible... Blair, but Blair, uh, Blair didn't run that government. Campbell ran it anyway. So, and uh, well, maybe maybe ran it well in, in within the in a political sense. Well, Alistair uh, Campbell was a very effective um, wielder of power, but uh, mm -hmm. you could never ever put him in front of an electorate and expect them to vote for him. No, which is why he had to be smuggled into to Downing Street uh, by orders in council rather than by the normal constitutional route. But irrespective of what opinions one might hold about Brexit, it has been a, a disruptive moment in British politics. Well, of course it has, because it's, 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 it's destroyed uh, parliamentary supremacy. Uh, it's very dangerous to have two different sources of uh, democratic authority in one, in one country. And so you have two rival sources. You have the elected parliament, and you have the uh, and you have the the majority view of the referendum, and they don't so, agree with each other. What happens then? Result, as I predicted, is uh, is constitutional deadlock and chaos, which I have to point out is not over because we aren't out yet. So, on principle, you are just are you just on principle opposed to the use of the, the popular referendum within the British oh, Constitution? I think referendum is an absolute violation of, of the Constitution of England. 
And uh, the, the Irish constitution had makes elaborate provisions for referenda, and they, they're less stringent than they used to be, as I understand it. Uh, but very, very careful limits are made on, on the nature of campaigning and all kinds of other things like that. And also it is part of the constitution, which is recognized and has a recognized effect. In, in, in Britain, it's, it's like suddenly having a 110-volt um, DC current pumped into a 250-volt AC system. It doesn't work. If part of our problem is the failure of public religion, and it seems to me it's very hard to imagine right now any kind of significant return to religious practice across the Western world. What is the future? Oh, the future is terrible. Okay, it's terrible. Any any sense of what shape it, it will take? No, I think one can see obviously that the that what might be called Christian Europe is coming to an end. And we have we now have lived for some long time in the afterglow of, of European Christendom. It's uh, laws and customs and, and, and culture and behaviour continue to be shaped by it. But as you know, j just as the after the sun has set, there is quite a lengthy period during which it still sheds light. Uh, it's not permanent. Ultimately, the the the, the, the darkness falls. And when the darkness falls, the, all those restraining and uplifting effects of Christianity, which have operated in making our civilization, particularly the, the very powerful role of trust uh, between individuals, between, between individuals in the state, trust in the law, trust in institutions, when that goes, and I have to say, I think the, um, the abuse of the, of the coronavirus uh, to to distill power out of fear and to create a new source of government, of almost absolute government authority, is a very dangerous development. Once that's gone, then the things which we thought we were used to and which we thought were permanent will depart. And at the same time, of course, the economic prosperity of the European continent is very much in danger. I don't see how it can be sustained at this level much longer. I think. Well, it's it's an old saw to say it, but very often, people exactly the wrong the people who should read Nietzsche don't, and the people who who shouldn't always do. <laughs> I think that actually there's some. I think Nietzsche is actually very prescient in his understanding, in his vision of what of the decay of Christianity. At the, in the end of the 19th century, and the crisis that will occur now that God is dead, what shall we put yes. in his place? Yes. And I yes. think, I'm not a religious person, but it's something that annoys me about what is called the new atheism, is its incredibly unsophisticated understanding of the importance that the Christian, that Christianity has had in creating what we consider to be liberal ideas and things. There's a really fascinating article, which I won't go into now, but in science, you said trust specifically about the importance, bizarrely because of the Christian's opposition, Christianity's opposition to, to incest and, uh, in, in, in marriage and things, to the, the, the evolution of trust between strangers within Christian societies 
uh, being at far higher levels than in any other society. That's right. Tru- All of these, these tru- things... Trust is, a, is an expression of the love of God. And if you don't have that, then you're reduced to a completely mechanic. I've, I've always been slightly puzzled by the number of Christians who cite the golden rule as a, as a Christian principle. I don't believe that it is. The golden rule is a transactional arrangement of appearing, mm-hmm. appearing to be good, uh, which anybody can do. Uh, so anybody familiar with office politics will know the person who appears to be nice and friendly who actually isn't. Uh, but you only find out that later. Uh, and I, I, it, it's easy to appear to be good to obtain uh, the same sort of transactional apparent goodness from others, but, but real goodness uh, has to involve uh, an understanding that the, the immortal soul is involved. And no, I, the, the new atheists, and I'll be, it gets me involved in sibling rivalry problems here, but the new atheism seems to me to have been a, a, a pretty scruffy, uninteresting uh, enterprise of the publishing industry. Uh, I don't know if you're aware. I think anybody said anything new during the entire controversy. I think if, if, if you're, you may, you may, you may, be, may not be aware, there was a book written by a, an American academic called Larry Seedentop called the, Inve- the Invention of the Individual. He's a Harvard academic, brilliant piece of scholarship. He's a secular Jewish scholar, but basically he, and with incredible depth of scholarship, uh, lays the invention of the individual and what we would cont- call contemporary European liberal ideas at the feet of, of Christianity, particularly St. Paul. You're great St. Paul as being this incredibly important figure in the evolution of the ideas. And it seems to me that what these people don't get is that we are living off the carcass, in a sense, a rather brutal image, maybe, oh, yeah. of Christ- Christian morality. And some, very soon, there's not going to be any meat or bone left. And what we do then, I don't know. Well, this is exactly my, this is when people say to me, well, why, what's coming? I say, bad things coming. And I can't, I, I used to think when I began on this business, when I first started writing books, which people told me was the key to having any kind of influence in society at all, uh, I thought maybe uh, I can actually make some impact on the way in which my opponents think. Ultimately, I thought, in a society dominated by the left, if you can influence the left, you might be able to get somewhere. But they're not influenceable. And at the same time, you also thought you might give your own side, uh, it's not a majority, but the large minority of conservative-minded people, both some encouragement and some, some reason to develop a political strategy. But I've not found that to be true. At moments of decision, particularly at general elections, what people do is they vote tribally uh, rather than intellectually. And so, for instance, it was crucial for any kind of development of a proper conservatism in Britain that David Cameron's uh, basically Eurocommunist takeover of the Conservative Party was rejected by, uh, by conservatives in 2010. Uh, it, that would have been the signal for the for the recreation of a for the creation of a proper, genuinely conservative formation in the country. But I could not persuade people this was so. They wanted tribally to vote uh, against Gordon Brown, uh, even if that meant uh, installing in Downing Street a man who was quite openly a Blairite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I couldn't, I couldn't get through. I remember where there was a there was an organisation called the Bruges Group in in, in, in Britain, uh, 
which is sort of Thatcherite, and they invited me to address them, I think the 2009 Conservative Party conference in Manchester, and I made this point. And I came to believe on that afternoon in, in, in global cooling. Uh, the temperature of the room dropped by about 15 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit. And I, uh, the, the, there was a total horror uh, that anyone should be suggesting that uh, it was their job to, to achieve the, the uh, electoral defeat of the Conservative Party the following year, which it was. Uh, a number of people who were at that meeting have since apologized to me for their hostility towards me. But it, the, the, the fact was there was no interest. Uh, and I don't believe there really has been any interest among the mass of, of nominally patriotic conservative people in Britain in really going for a, a truly uh, politically, morally and socially conservative uh, policy. Uh, they'd much prefer to cling to the tribe, and they did. And that's they got David Cameron, and now they've got, and then they got Theresa May, and now they've got Al Johnson. Good you, luck you, to them, but I'm not, I'm not tagging along. You said before, one of the things that conservatives have to do is be intelligent in their choice of what it is that they, they look at, what, what it is they shout no to. Well, I think Douglas, Edmund Burke would have said that, wouldn't he? Yeah. I think Douglas Murray um, has said that, say, talking, for example, about uh, issues regarding, you said, transgenderism and new legislation, that this is the kind of thing that in generations we will look back, people will look back and say, they did what? And I wonder if, that, if that's what we need to do as conservatives. Look around us, see what's happening and say, what is it that we are doing that people in three or four generations may look back at and say, my God, they did what? If you look at, if, so I'm saying, I suppose, if you're looking around and you, 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 you have to choose something or some things that the conservatives should be standing in, in the middle of the road saying stop. What are those? What are those well, things? They're gone. I, they, they were things which went a long time ago. And this is the, the, to me, the most fundamental defeat of conservatism and indeed Christianity in the Western nations uh, in the past 50 years has been the, the failure to defend the institution of marriage. Okay, uh, and the failure to uh, to um, insist that the um, the upbringing of children was a was an activity of private life, uh, not a responsibility of the state, and everything that went with it. And I think that the it's fascinating to see how in 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 all the Western countries in the middle to late sixties, the final legal props of uh, of of lifelong Christian marriage were knocked away. And that from that defeat, I think almost everything else follows. I, there is going to be, I, it's going to be shown on the BBC uh, from, the, um, from the week in which we record this is this series called Mrs. America, which is, I think, probably a, uh, how should I put it, uh, a misrepresentation of the activities of Phyllis Schlafly, who, um, who was about the last major uh, figure who was prepared to stand up as an intelligent, educated, uh, political woman and say that the, the, the policy of what you might call second wave feminism is bad for women. Mm -hmm. uh, but she couldn't even do that. And it's the 
but that was a that was a cause which conservatism might have taken up. But it ended up instead dashing itself to pieces on what I now increasingly regard as a ter- the terribly mistaken issues of homosexuality and same-sex marriage, which were a, a, a complete waste of effort and time. Well, on the issue of same-sex marriage, we had, as you, 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 you know probably, we had a referendum here because it couldn't yeah. be... Which I felt was the right thing to do. I didn't think that we should, in the sense that in other countries it had been introduced via the courts, and I think I, I felt that if it was going to happen, that it should be one way or the other. That the courts well, okay. the wrong way to I, do it. I, I don't. That's 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 your affair. I mean, my, my problem was this: here were conservatives getting tremendously exercised about whether you know, ten thousand or so people had same-sex marriages, having completely failed to defend millions well, in fact, of heterosexual marriages. And the millions of children uh, who suffered from the the collapse, or indeed Absolutely. non-existence, of those that, that was a mistake. Yeah. That's that, in a sense, that's where I want to go. Because my feeling about it, which didn't get me friends on either side of the debate, was that I had no problem with gay marriage. I just didn't think it should be straight marriage. But when you lit, there was just going to, they were conflating the two things. I think if you if you want to do that, then that's fine. Go ahead. But the problem was that it became clear to me as the, the argument, the discussion which later stopped being, around three months out, discussion ceased to be possible. You just became a bad and wicked person and had to be thrown out if you, but what became clear was when we talked, when I talked to people, we had completely lost the sense that marriage was in any sense a particular or peculiar institution. Marriage was simply a public declaration of love. That was it. And when love was finished, well, then the marriage was finished, you moved on to the next thing. There was no sense that there had any is, kind of institutional power. That's what the divorce law reforms of the 1960s did. And it's fascinating. In civil law, in I think any country, the purpose of the civil law is to enforce contract. And if A and B make a contract, and B breaks the contract, then you go to the courts to force B either to keep the contract or to uh, achieve damages from B for having broken it. But in the law of marriage, the person who wants to break the contract is the one who gets the support of the state and the courts, and the person who wants to keep the contract is the one who ends up getting punished. Right. It's a total reversal. Nobody notices this this with very, very strange paradox, but it is true. And ultimately, uh, if the person who wants to keep the marital promise uh, insists on staying in the home, then ultimately the police uh, can actually be called to remove that person. Uh, this is extraordinary. And I, I, it sums up for me, and, it, and we'll get back to statues now. It sums up to me that the thing which really, really struck me hardest about the Soviet Union when I got there, as opposed to what I thought about it uh, as an occasional visitor or someone viewing it from afar, that the real difference wasn't the secret police, the greyness, the wonky consumer goods, the shortages and all the rest of it. The real difference was that this was a, uh, a state in which family life couldn't really exist. That the family was totally invaded by the power of the state. And this is the moment when I realized this was, was quite a sinister. I was a winter's afternoon, it must have been late in 1990, about six months after I'd gone to live in Moscow. I was walking around in a small park 
which I'd not come into before. And in the middle of it was a statue. And the statue was of a character called Pavlik Morozov. And Pavlik Morozov probably existed, but the story about him, which was invented by the Soviet regime in the 1930s, is more or less a lie. The story that was told was that he had denounced his parents to the authorities, I think for hoarding grain or some other anti-social activity, mm. uh, and had then been murdered by his grandfather for this. And he was, he was therefore portrayed to, to all young pioneers, all young Soviet citizens, uh, all children, as a hero, because he had denounced his parents to the authorities. He had put the state and the party first and his family second. And there was this statue. And oddly enough, I never saw it pulled down. There was no film being, being pulled down. But I went back a few weeks after the August putsch and its failure to the same park, and it had gone. So this mm -hmm. day, I don't know what happened to it. It was a great shame. When I talked to, to Russian friends and acquaintances of, of my age, they would shudder at the memory of, of being told to reveal morals. I it was a thing which still brought them shame and, and displeasure. And you thought, this isn't just a place with a different political system. This isn't just a place with a different economic system. This isn't just a place with a secret police force. This is Mordor. This is a place of, of, uh, of really serious moral difference from the society in which I grew up. And now I see, I think that the, uh, in different ways, but I think that the, um, the battle between the state and the married family in the, in the Western countries, which was joined in the 1960s and had been gone, this has, has pretty much ended with the victory of the state and the married family is incredibly weak. Yeah, it's one of the, well, it is, it, it is bizarrely not a hot topic issue here, but there are proposals at the moment to introduce legislation. We had a, uh, we had a change in our constitution, which had had previously had very strong defences of the parental rights over the those of the state, and which recognised parents as the moral uh, educators of their children. Yeah. Um, I we were told at the time that it was a very minor change, very small change. It wouldn't have any great effects. We shall see. There's now a, a piece of legislation which is proposed to allow children under the age of 16 to transition without the permission of their parents, as long as they get the support of uh, the state, uh, a guardian ad litem or something is appointed. And it seems to me, when if, you, if you're now getting to a position where the state can say, your 14-year-old child can do these radical things to him or herself, and you as a parent have no right to object to that, we have reached a very odd pass indeed. And also the notion that the state, the, and this is an assumption when I talk to perfectly well-meaning people, that the state will actually know better, whether it's about who your doctor should be or where your child should go to school. Or that, that, that's, that's been the belief of the Cultural Revolution. Lady Helen Brooke uh, wrote a letter to the Times, she, she was back in the 70s, I think, saying that you know, the parental state uh, was on its way to taking over. And I, I think it's uh, the words when I read them, I thought, I, 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 when I transcribed them into the book, I thought, can this be right? Can anybody actually have said anything so blatant, as you often do when you find a quote? And I checked, I went right back, I went down to the London Library, I went and looked in the actual copy of the Times, because they have them there, to see the letter to make sure I'd got this right, and it was there, she'd actually said it. The parental state will choose. It's one of their, it's been one of their objectives. It's what they, it's what they wanted, and they've got it. And it's a huge and fundamental change. And the funny, it, it's, it's, it 
confirms me in this very curious sensation I got when I came back to live in England in 1995 after more or less five years abroad, two and a half of them in the USSR and two of them in the USA. And so is the I began to think, I, I, began, I kept coming across these occasions when I think, this reminds me of somewhere. Where does it remind me of? <laughs> what, what is it? I can't work it out. And then eventually the penny dropped. It reminded me of the Soviet Union, right. which I had seen collapse. And it swept away into the dustbin of history, ceased to exist, loathed and despised by those who lived in it. And here it was, born again, in the, in the comfortable middle-class suburbs of England. How is this happening? I, it's, it's never gone out of my mind. And I, I see it all the time. And before, before we know where you are, we'll have Pavlik Morozov appearing in, um, in some square in, uh, in, in Bristol with admiring crowds. I think so is it... Is it the, then is things the, really will have gone full circle. <laughs> so is the takeaway from this conversation today that there is nothing about which conservatives should be stopping, shouting stop, but rather we should just observe it from the sidelines, oh, drink no, a do glass of like. wine. I'm not even sure what a sideline was. I made, people used to say to me, oh, well, you talk a good game, but why don't you do something? So I did. And I, my intervention in politics was to say, don't vote conservative. I'm a very strong believer in depriving uh, people of legitimacy by denying them votes. I think it's often mm -hmm. it's much more effective not to vote than it is to vote. But I can never get people to do this. People have this strange sacramental belief that voting is a sort of uh, holy duty, which you can't shake them from. Uh, and it, it, so I've found in my own life that any attempt to get directly involved in politics failed completely. And this has taught me a lesson. It only makes you unhappy, and I'm not doing it anymore. If other people think that they can take on this, this monster and, uh, and tackle it and defeat it, I'd say um, the best of luck to you. Uh, but my own experience is that you're in for a very hard time and you'll, you will only make yourself unhappy. But if by saying this, and who can tell the future if by saying this I stimulate some brave person uh, <laughs> into such exasperation with my... Um, with my attitude that he goes off or she goes off and, 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 and creates the movement which finally turns the tide, then I won't be sorry. But it doesn't you know, seem very likely to me. Not likely, but then again, as it has been observed, we are not necessarily called to happiness. Absolutely not, no. Though I've had, I have to say, a great share of it, and I don't, I make no, people say, why are you so miserable? I say, how, why, how can you possibly confuse contentment with your political surroundings, with, uh, with the joys of your private life? They're not the same thing. You can have a, a, a very, very pleasant and, and rewarding private life and still be in a state of complete white-hot fury with your political surroundings. But isn't... <laughs> I am no longer, I haven't been in, in any sense politically active since for many, many years, except to the extent that we, I, we do this kind of thing and write the art, the, art, the art blog or article or whatever, whinging and waving my fist in the air. But the thing that really is problematic more and more is the fact that you say, for me, politics is just occupies a, a certain space in my life. And it should only occupy a certain space in everybody's life. I mean, Michael Oakeshott talks about that, that it's only one modality. And there should be large spaces. Increasingly, they won't allow us to do this. No. They're, go they're going in to football stadiums and, and uh, they're going into cricket matches and they're going to concerts. Increasingly, you can't have a conversation at a dinner. You, you can't drink a glass of wine and just be in a social 
to place, but it has to be politicized. Yes. And this, I find, the most, in its own small way, the most depressing thing about this change. True enough. And it's, it is it's one of the reasons why I find the, the, the virus panic so worrying is that it has provided the pretext for yet more interventions in areas which are supposed to be private uh, or which are supposed to govern themselves. You may see the connection in what you just said and what I'm about to say, but a, a, a private library in, in London to which I belong, I haven't been back since it reopened, but a, a, an acquaintance of mine has. And he says, of course, it's now covered in plastic screens and signs saying keep your distance and all the rest of it. It's what used to be a really elegant, peaceful, secluded, sequestered private space for thought and reading has now been interfered with in a, in a way which is impossible to ignore, which you're bound to be conscious of. I want to just... And to me, it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a form of... I call it marshmallow totalitarianism. It doesn't have the iron-fisted gulag nature. Uh, the ultimate threat tends not to be to your life, but to your livelihood. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, 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 is, it is totalitarianism. It, it, it isn't prepared to tolerate the existence of dissent. Or I just want to, to finish up talking briefly about COVID. Um, David Quinn commented to, to me the other day, he said that it's, it, there's something very odd where when you have two sets of opinions with scientists, both of whom, both, who are both groups speaking in good faith, both very well credentialed, both, but if you have a group saying, advocating, shall we say, a less coercive, more liberal, attitude saying that the, the virus is less dangerous than we'd understood fatality rates are, that when they are critiqued they are critiqued savagely aggressively yeah. nastily personally in a way that the the scientists saying basically that this is the end of the world and we're all going to die are not you have had a very strong position that you feel that this has not simply been an overreaction, but rather, as the Italians would say, this has been instrumentalized in a deeply political way. To which, even would you, could you expand on that? Well, I'd, my fundamental position was always that it was a disproportionate response. Uh, that there wasn't, that didn't seem to be the enough, remotely enough evidence to justify the extremity of the actions taken. Uh, unprecedented things like quarantining the healthy, which I don't believe ever being used uh, before. Uh, the, and all the, the, the terrible results of that, uh, which Professor Sushirit Bhakti of the University of Mainz very, uh, very presciently criticized in his initial statements back in March, saying that terrible effect this was particularly going to have on the healthy old being, being confined and, and also to the, to the treatment of other diseases. Uh, that struck me as, as a very important part. And, there, and then when one realized uh, that, uh, as any former Marxist immediately will, the colossal economic effects of the, of the, of the proposed actions which were going to follow, 
uh, I sort of, I just thought the word disproportionate uh, was was the one which struck me, and also it didn't seem to me to be persuasive. I didn't it didn't seem to me that epidemiology was a hard science. We were dealing here with uh, with speculative prediction, mm -hmm. uh, given a certain grandeur by uh, by pseudoscientific language, but not really based on what seemed to me to be the scientific method of, of experiment and, uh, and the constant testing of, of claims by experiment and by uh, by experience. So I was against it. Then I began to see as it went on, uh, and I do think very much that this is accidental happenstance, but I think that the you've, you've heard the expression, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yes. I got the impression that very large numbers of people saw in this circumstance, as it deepened, an opportunity to get what they wanted. Uh, and at the same time, it's a very odd change of mood when people stop associating in, privately with each other, when they're confined to their homes, when their sole source of information is broadcasting in the internet, uh, when the, none of their thoughts are being moderated by, 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 by humorous conversations in the pub or wherever it happens to be or in the office, uh, then people start thinking differently and ideas begin to, uh, to spread, which are... Um, which would not normally, it seems to me, get uh, get much time. And it's extraordinary that in in I don't know what the role of broadcasting has been in Ireland, but in Britain the BBC has effectively become a government broadcast. I I never got on the BBC very much, but the, I had a sort of position as a as a semi licensed uh, spokesman for a certain part of conservatism, and I would get on to. The occasional mainstream program to put and be invited to give my position. Since this began, even though I have been one of the most prominent critics of government policy, I and the others have simply been excluded. Uh, the the very existence of a coherent critique of government policy is concealed from people. They don't know that anybody disagrees. And a really notable figure, such as Jonathan Sumption, the former Supreme Court judge who's spoken out against who must be one of the most distinguished people in Britain, has barely broken the surface. I mean, a small part of the BBC has given him a minor platform, but in general, his name and what he says is largely unknown. It's been... And you can't help feeling that the cultural revolutionaries have seen this as an opportunity. Uh, to say, well, here we, here we are, we have an emergency, and, in, and an emergency is always an opportunity to, to obtain and secure more power and to pursue on the pretext of this emergency all kinds of objectives, whether it be the, the demolition of planning regulations so you can build practically anything anywhere, what that has to do with coronavirus, uh, you'd have to wonder, uh, or whether it be the hugely increased state powers of interference in our private lives which have resulted from it, whatever it is, they have distilled power out of fear and they've liked the taste of it. And now they so, don't want to let go of it. There's a very odd thing that has happened. It's, I think it's happened in Britain. I think it's happening here. And I, I'm just curious, and, and I, I promise I will finish on this. Maybe you, you can help me if you, if, I'm, if you have memories otherwise. On the issue of, say, of hate speech, you're talking about the, 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 the putting power advancing to places where it historically had not been. We now have a situation where you have people being investigated for non-crimes, where police are taking reports 
has I I can't imagine I can't remember any time that, that something like this has happened before. It's this I, I'm sick of saying people always like to quote Huxley or Orwell in situations yeah. like this. And I keep saying to my friends, no, it's not Huxley. If you want to understand the modern world, you have to read Lewis Carroll. Yes. It's, Alice, it's Alice through the looking yes, glass. You do. It's not yeah. 1984 anymore. And when you see a ship, a, a fitter, or a or a or a, or a, a, a chap working on a on a, on a, a, a ship or shipyard in, in Glasgow being investigated by what the police themselves say are not crimes, what's happening there? How is that possible? What is the, the, the function of the police is to invest, investigate a non-crime? Well, you you may be sure that what is not a crime now will become one. They're just practicing. <laughs> Uh, and it, it, it will it, it will become I, the, again this is not new uh, I have to keep saying this because I, I spend a lot of time writing these things and I, I, I want people to read them I wrote some long time ago a book called The Abolition of Liberty and one of the cases I explored was a very curious one about a, a street preacher very eccentric old geezer called Harry Hammond who used to um, denounce homosexuality, not homosexual, homosexuality, in, mm. um, in Bournemouth, of all places, so that, that <laughs> stayed and, and, uh, and conservative seaside resort. And he, he, I don't imagine anybody paid the slightest attention to him at all, because he was one of those people who shouts in the street. But uh, on one occasion, a group of people decided to attack him and, and, uh, and pelted him uh, with clods of earth. The police intervened, and it's a very curious thing. One of the police officers intervened because he thought that the people who were attacking him should be stopped, and the other police officer intervened because she thought uh, that he was provoking them. And in the end, it went to court, and he was tried and convicted of uh, breaching the Public Order Act of 1986. And his placard, uh, which said something like, stop homosexuality, uh, was destroyed. Uh, by public order. And it, although one police officer gave evidence on one side and one on the other, and it was a moment of transition in our society when you had, you still had elements of the old-fashioned police force who believed that, that crime basically involved the, the deliberate attacking of people going about their lawful business. And the other part of the police force which believed that crime involved what you thought and what you said. But uh, that's... And, 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 the, and it was the second one which won that's the this incredible. Look it up. It's a fascinating case. It's it's uh, it, it, it it it's like so many serious things. It also has funny elements to it. But it is it is. Um, but isn't there something a, fundamental? A crucial moment. And this is this is this must be coming up to fifteen to twenty years ago now. Isn't Not there something? Fun the politicization of the police and courts in, in in Britain has been a very long process. We regard Not over yet if. If when you read the textbooks, it was always regarded that this great leap forward had occurred around the time of somewhere between the Glorious Revolution and the Enlightenment, where we said, you will no longer be tried or held, held for thinking things yeah. or believing things. You will only be held to be culpable for doing things. Right. And you won't be held to be responsible for things that your father or your grandfather did. And this was a great thing. You would only be, whereas we now seem to be reverting, 
Honey, I don't think it's overstating it to say that we are now going criminalizing. If you hate, hate crimes implies that hate, which is an emotion, is criminalized. You're emo You're going to criminalize feeling a certain thing. Yeah, I, it's it's basically it's it's a instead of having a law, uh, which is based on the 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 protection of the individual from from crime. Uh, you have a law which protects the state from whatever the state doesn't like. I, someone wrote to me the other day and said, well, we're, we're, we're back to the age of Hobbes, or ad advancing or declining into the age of Bentham, uh, and the, which is a great move away from the old common law principles. And that's, that is what's, that's why I mentioned the common law. That is, that is what is happening. And it's interesting that it should, it should, be, it should be Hobbes, uh, because he, here we have the Leviathan, the Leviathan which which protects us from the from the terrifying virus. Hobbes is not now. We now we we now huddle under the skirts of the state again mm -hmm. in a way that we haven't done for centuries. I think Hobbes is one of those underread men. I think he, it, it behoves people to read a little bit more Hobbes. Anyway, it. I'm aware that I've been I've taken up more of your time than, than I had promised, so I'm going to release you back into the wild and I'm going to thank you and I'm going to thank my the viewers here at TRSI for joining us. And once again, I'd like to thank Peter Agents. And who knows, maybe in the future if we're all still in our gentle prisons, we may we may have time to talk again about other subjects. But for today, thank you very much. Thank you.